Hi everyone and welcome to the Perma Podcast. I am James Prescott, your host. Welcome to the show. Delighted to welcome a new guest to the show, somebody I've known for a while. Great guy, got a really powerful story. Um, we're going to explore that today. So welcome to the show, Joe Potosi. Thank you so much for this opportunity, James. I'm excited to visit with you and um, share my story. Yeah, I'm excited to hear it. It's um, yeah, for, from what I know of it already, it's it's just an incredibly powerful story, um, challenging, um, and also quite inspiring in some ways. So, tell us, tell us, just tell, let's just go into it. Tell us your story. Okay, sure. So, one of my earliest memories is um, I lived with my mother and father and my sister, who is 13 months my senior. And we we lived in a pretty dilapidated apartment, or I believe you call it a flat. Yep. <laughs> and, That's right. And uh, um, my mom was very pregnant with my brother, Marty. And she had him in September. And my dad worked for Chrysler, um, automobile corporation in the area, but he was uh, his employment was really shaky. I, I found out why later. But anyway, um, they applied to get into this new housing project, and we were accepted. And so for us, it was a step up in the right direction, I suppose. The housing project was relatively new and. You know, I think everyone was excited. I was excited because they were excited. I didn't really quite understand everything. So mm-hmm. we got it. We got moved into this new housing projects, and um, my mother and father both like to drink alcohol. And with this new place, this new neighborhood, we had all these new new faces and these new characters coming around. They would come around and play cards with my parents and drink alcohol, smoke weed. It was just a party all the time. Party, party, party. Well, there's this phrase, and I'm sure you've heard of this, being from the UK. My mother had Irish twins. Right. Do you know what Irish, Irish twins? Do you know I don't actually, is? no. <laughs> so Irish do. twins is when... Uh, a woman has ch- uh, children like within a year apart. So my mom um, was pregnant with. I'm yes. sorry. No, no, I'm just realizing what it is. <laughs> so my two brothers were 11 months apart, and I'm just going based on what she always said. That's what they call Irish twins. You know, she she had Marty. And within two months, she was pregnant once again. Wow. And, but that didn't slow down the drinking and the partying. And just the, uh, I noticed my mom and dad started getting into a lot of verbal altercations. And there was a time or two where my mother actually lashed out and physically attacked my dad. And one story... In particular, she just really went berserk on him, and he 
he never hit her back. He just kind of tried to cover up his face and just took a good old-fashioned whooping, I guess. And mm. but before long, um, my you know during this whole time, me and my sister were fitting, were taking care of my baby brother, my baby brother Marty. We would change his diapers, and there was a learning curve for me, big time. My sister seemed to pick up to everything really easily, and she basically taught me how to change the diaper, how to feed the baby, how to dress the baby, and we would have to take care of him, him because my mom was too preoccupied with drinking and partying. Hmm. So my, yeah, my father... He just left one day. He was gone for probably 10 to 12 days. and But the day he left, he went out the front door of our apartment. Later that same day, this guy, his name was Tyrone, came in the back door. And Tyrone, he was a familiar face. He was one of the guys that would come over and play cards and drink and party. And he was kind of a, he became a fixture at our at our apartment. With this man, Tyrone, he was a big man, 6'5". Hmm. And my mom was only 4'11". Wow. Wow. Right. Hmm. And I didn't really understand why my dad left, and I'll get into that later. But what I do know was that the love I experienced from my, both my mom and my dad was no longer there. It was gone. My mom was always angry and frustrated toward me and my sister, and she began to blame everything on us, the fact that there was no food. And, of course, she would blame it on my dad. You know, it's because he left us. We're in this situation. And... You know, the, the weeks and the months went by, but the drinking and the partying only intensified. And this man, Tyrone, never really showed any affection toward me and my sister and my baby brother. Mm. But, but he did show disdain or hatred, for a better term. Because, you see, I look like my dad, I acted like my dad, I talked like my dad, and I would frequently ask my mom, when is dad coming home? And the refrain began around this time that I'm just like my dad, I'm a piece of garbage, I'm worthless, I'm mm. a piece of crap, just like your father, they would say. Marty, or um, my mom had my brother Greg, so now there's four children. And from what I can remember, nothing really changed with the dynamics as far as my mother and stepfather taking care of the children, the babies, it was me and my sister. And there got to a point in time where my stepfather started to assault my mother. He physically beat her mm -hmm. over the years. Yeah, over the years, he broke her jaw, he broke her collarbone. And Goodness. yeah, it was it was really tragic. But yeah. what happened was well, what happened was, you know, 
he would beat her and then he would leave. Yeah. And here we are, just little kids, not even in school yet, and we were trying to clean our mother up, try to help her to bed, and at the same time, caring for the baby brothers that we had. And my mother would lash out at me and my sister, physically and verbally. Mm. My sister had really long hair, and she would grab her by the head of the hair and just start wailing on her. And then she will start attacking me for no, for no reason. Yeah. And she informed me that this man, Tyrone, hated me. And that's why she was beaten, because he wanted her to get rid of me. Because I was that thorn in the flesh, so to speak. I was like uh, my dad, Terry. I was like the Terry Jr. in his mind. Wow. Right. And he just wanted me out of the equation. Wow. So by this, he got into this habit. My mom, she started working second shift. And when my stepdad didn't want to deal with us kids, um, he would mm-hmm. send us down to the basement where he feels a little black and white TV. Mm-hmm. So he would send me and my sister down there with my two kid brothers, and he would lock us in the basement. Uh, there was no bathroom down there. There was no. There was nothing down there. Um, but he was so preoccupied with entertaining his friends and playing basketball right outside. Right outside the apartment was a parking lot. There was a, ba- a basketball hoop. And then, uh, you know, spring, summer, and fall, that's where you'd find him. Because he didn't work. Only my mom worked. and But he always found a way to have the money to get the drugs and the alcohol. He drank a fifth of brandy every day. So by the time, by the time I started school, um, but as you can imagine, by this time, I did create friendships in the neighborhood. Although um, I didn't mention this before, and it really shouldn't be important to your listeners, but back in the 1970s in Illinois, near Chicago, a white woman being with a black man was really frowned upon, wasn't really accepted by society. Hmm nor was it accepted by my extended family. Many of my family members in Dubuque, Iowa, didn't approve of this new relationship, simply based on the fact that he was a black man. Right. And then, you know, over time, the word got out that we were being abused and treated poorly, that my mother was beaten, and um, they never really stepped in to help us. But what they did do was get on the phone with him and call him and cuss him out, call him all these derogatory names, threaten to kill him. And as you can imagine, he was, this this would get him worked up and he would in turn take it out on my mother and myself. You know, like if he, if, you know, he was mad about something and he perceived I was the source of the problem, he would, you know, come down to the basement where I was detained. I was locked up. 
and he said I was going to get a whooping. And a whooping was he would make me strip down naked, and my sister, and my kid brothers, who are just toddlers that you know at this time, would be watching. They'd be looking on, and he would have me bend over the basement stairs, and he would go on and on about this perceived injustice or this perceived idea he had in his head about what I said or what I did wrong. And then he had a he had a wooden paddle he would often use. He also had his belt, his waist belt, and a, a cord from an iron, you know, you iron your clothes. With, he had a cord he would use. And then, wow. you know, the whole time, I'm standing there kind of bent over, and if I would flinch or if I would anticipate a swat, he would add another one on. Oh, goodness. Sounds awful. Absolutely awful. So that, yeah, that, that was kind of his um, form of discipline or his form of punishment, and it was really, it was really, really twisted. Now... I only remember one time I got a spanking from my father, and it was with his waist belt to my butt. But before it happened, he explained to me, as I recall, what I did. I was fighting with my sister. She would basically beat me up, but I bit her, and I got a spanking because of it. But after the spanking, he gave me a hug, and he told me he loved me, and you know, he was kind of emotional, and, you know, I got over it. Hmm. So with this new scenario, this man, Tyrone, eventually became my stepdad. They eventually got married. But the apartment we were living in was a two-bedroom. So fast forward the story a little bit. I'm now in school, and with the friends I made in the neighborhood, a group of us walked to school together. And a lot of the kids, like like an average kid, you know, they don't really want to rush to school because they don't like school. I was usually the one leading the pack because I wanted to get to school because at school I felt safe. I didn't feel I was going to be beaten or my life, my, I was going to be threatened with my life by either my mom or my stepdad. And there was structure there and I felt like they cared about me. So there was a point in time in second grade, um, my teacher, Miss Cush, noticed that my attention span dropped off and my, my work had dropped, dropped off as well. And she talked to me after school one day. And the next thing you know, she set up a meeting to come to the house. She sat down with me and my mom and stepdad, and she expressed her concerns. And my gosh, they put on such a performance. You know, mm. and they lied through their teeth and just they made everything seem perfect, you know, like leave it to Beaver or something. And it was after that, that scenario, my stepdad said, never, ever put our business out on the streets. In other words, you better, you better never tell anyone what happens at this house. Don't tell anyone how you're disciplined or if we drink or don't tell people our business because if you do, you're going to pay a hefty price. 
Wow. But my young mind, I felt like the school would let me down, you know. And it was later that year, there was a local church that had an after-school program. My mom allowed me and my sister to go to this program, um, and I looked at it as an opportunity to stay away from home. Yes, I had little brothers, and sometimes they would have a babysitter so my mom and dad can go out drinking or whatever. But I was worried about my own safety. So I started going to this after-school program at the local church, Zion, Zion Lutheran Church in DeRoffitt, Illinois. And I would often ask if I could stay over longer, help clean up, help sweep or whatever, because I really didn't want to go home. And um, sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. But these people, Mary and Helen, and those are the only two I remember, they, they were really kind and really, really loving to us children. They invested in our lives. They seemed like they really cared. And to this day, those I often think about those people and how they impacted me. Mm. Very well could be why I am the person I am today. And I'll talk about that later. But ultimately, they shared the story with us about God and Jesus Christ and what he did for all of mankind. But this is the problem, James, that I faced. Yeah. The problem was I couldn't trust my mother or my stepfather yeah, or my father, for that matter, because not only did he leave, but nobody knew where he was, and he wasn't helping us financially. How can I trust in a guy that can't see, feel, or touch? Absolutely. Yeah. Resonate with that. But I, I continue to go to this program because it was uplifting I always felt better after I went, and I just, I would always try my very best at home, in spite of being in that environment. I try to just keep a good attitude and be the best kid I could be. You know, yeah. I'll clean around the house and do my chores and work extra hard with my kid brothers, but it was never good enough. And there was a time that I did talk to one of the ladies at the church and I explained to her how, how my mother was beaten all the time and how we were locked in the basement and how he liked to beat me and pick on me. You know, in America, and I'm sure it's the same with the UK, there's this whole anti-bullying pro- um, program. You know, there's a bully in the schoolyard, there's a bully in the neighborhood. Well, I lived with the bully me and my stepfather it was behind those four walls is when I was always you know nervous and always walking on eggshells because I never knew what I was going to walk in on I never knew what to expect from either one of them actually yeah so James (sighs) I know I go ahead I'm sorry no no I'm just uh it's so difficult to to um, go through, you know. It's such a painful thing, such a you know to have to go through that all the time and to not know what what you're coming home to. It's it's, it's awful, you know. I mean, I had a bit of a, a childhood trauma with a with a with a parent who 
um, totally different, not in any way as bad as as serious as yours, but uh, with a parent who had an alcohol problem and um, coming home and having to break up my parents' fights. People who listen to the podcast know I've said it before on here. Um, so I resonate in some respects to to what you're talking about, but yeah, just awful. Yeah, I, I didn't mention this before, but I I think this is the point I want to bring home at the end of our talk. If people that are listening don't take anything else away from my story, and by the way, my story by no means is worse than anyone else's. All right, I'm not I'm not trying to promote that idea. But what I am saying is that, is this, I want people to consider this. Your condition does not have to be your conclusion. So whatever you're facing in your life, whether you had a traumatic childhood and as a result, you know, depression and PTSD, CPTSD, or whatever the case, that was the condition. Or maybe it's a present condition. It doesn't have to be your conclusion. It isn't something that you have to live with the rest of your life. Mm, that's uh, profound. I, mean, I, I should say PTSD is a lifelong managing process, right? Yeah, yeah. But we don't <laughs> have to stay stuck in that place. Absolutely. That's my point. So, you know, <clears throat> so... My mom got pregnant with her fifth child, and we got approved to move into a bigger apartment, still in the same projects, and it was just right across the parking lot, like not even a quarter of a block away. It was a four-bedroom, and, you know, I think all of us kids were excited because it would be more space for us. We can have our own rooms, a little more breathing room, I guess. And I believe we all, me and my sister in particular, suffered from Stockholm Syndrome. Um, we got into this little apartment, and by this point, I'm in fourth grade, and my mother had two boys to my stepfather, and the pattern still continued. Um, him beating my mother. My mother blaming it all on me as she would beat me. She would tell me over and over, he hates you. He wants to get rid of you. And this, this thing, strange thing started where they would get on the phone and call my grandmother, my dad's parents, and ask them to take me. Now, I need to back up for a minute and say that. And my dad is still not in the picture. And as I would walk to school or walk to the church or walk home, I would envision my father. I would daydream. My dad would come around the next, he would be around the next corner. He would be like Superman or the Lone Ranger. He would come and he would beat up the bad guy, mm. set things straight, and he would accept my, at this point, my one, um, technically my half-brother, and my other brother, but that never happened. We were allowed, however, to go to Dubuque, to Dubuque, Iowa in the summers. Initially, they would mm. drive us to Dubuque, and I would go to my paternal grandparents' home initially. 
And somehow, some way, my aunt Grace, my dad's sister, would find my dad. And he'd come to Dubuque, and it was such a great reunion, you know. And my kid brothers, his two other sons, didn't know any other man as their father except for my stepdad. I knew who my dad was. They didn't. And so he tried to spend time with them, but I could tell he didn't feel that bond, you know. It was it was really sad. And my sister as well. He would spend time with her. Yeah. But but for some reason I felt we were more he would gravitate more toward me. And the same kind of scenario would happen with my father and my extended family. I would blab. I would tell them what's taking place at home, how awful it is, how my mother would be beaten, how I would be beaten. I would be threatened with my life. And instead of my family calling the social services or calling the police, that never happened. What mm-hmm. would happen was they would get on the phone with my mom and my stepdad make all these idle threats, threaten to kill, excuse me. No problem. They were threatening to kill my stepdad. So when I got home, I had to pay a big, big price. I mean, I was beaten so severely by my stepdad. And after he got done with me, he just dropped me on the ground. I just laid there, bawling my eyes out. Because I broke the rule. I, I told people outside the house mm. what he was doing to us. And that was not acceptable. Mm. Oh, I'm so sorry. But, right. So in third grade, my mom, she's working when she can. My stepdad still doesn't work. So I got a job at a local restaurant. On Saturdays, I would sweep their parking lot and clean their glass window where they could reach. The, the door that led into the restaurant, I made $2, and I will give the money to my mom, trying to make a difference. But really, part of it was I was trying to make my mom happy with me. Because remember, my mom still think, she still thought I was a piece of garbage, I was worthless. I'm just like my dad. Come hmm. of the year. Well, one of the things my dad, my stepdad promised us and promised my mom was he would get us out of the projects into a real house. And that actually happened. We moved out of the projects into a house yeah. on the west side of Rockford. Um, I was going into fifth grade. But just prior to us moving, just prior to me getting down with fourth grade, um, yeah. A, a pretty awful thing happened, and this is kind of a graphic story, just so just to kind of give you a little warning. You know, we had been at parent-teacher conferences ever since I could remember being in school. My mom would rush through the process just to get home so she can drink and carry on. Well, but on, on this particular day... Um, we had home for school. We had fried bologna sandwiches. My mom instructed me and my sister to get some clean clothes on. So I, I go upstairs, and I couldn't find any. I found a pair of clean pants and a clean shirt. I couldn't find any clean underwear. So 
I put on these blue jeans and I went to zip up the zipper and I got caught in the zipper. My friend oh, got caught. Yikes. And so I had to walk. It was like four blocks to the school. And for some strange reason, my mom was just taking her time with all the teachers and just it, so unlike her, right? Yeah. When we eventually got home, she, you know, the the ritual started where we had to take our baths. My sister went, and then I went. But when I went up there, I could not get unstuck. My private part was still stuck in the zipper. <sighs> So and as much as I, as much as I tried, I couldn't get unstuck. And I'm stomping around, and as you can imagine, I'm in pain. She comes up there, and she was like, "What's going on, moron?" And she's puffing her cigarette, and I explained to her I'm stuck. She's like, "What do you mean you're stuck, idiot?" And I kind of pointed down, and I backed up. She took a big drag from her cigarette. And with all the hatred in her heart, she grabbed that zipper and like one motion, up and down. Oh, gosh. And I, I was free. Oh, God. But I, I, was bleeding, I was bleeding like a stuck pig. Oh, gosh. And, uh, oh, my gosh. That's, oh, I can't even think about it. <laughs> as a guy as well. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. Oh, so, man. Oh, dear. I, went, I just went to my bed and I grabbed the wash rag and I just put a rag over it and cried myself to sleep. And there was no doctor visit, there was no ER, there was none of that. So I was getting it from both ends. I, so we get to this new house and I, I get a paper out so I help the family out. And with this paper out, it was, it was 188 newspapers every day and 266 on Sundays. So as you can imagine, being a little kid in fifth grade, so I would have been, I would have been 10. Yeah. Living in these newspapers. Um, in the winter months, I got a job working for all my customers shoveling snow, so I made, you know, a substantial amount of money. At least I, at least I thought it was. And I would give it to my mom some of it, and some of it I'll stash away. And I decided, you know, I'm going to treat myself to a lunch. I went down to this fancy, it's like a um, like a steakhouse. I bought myself some beef stew and hot cocoa. I thought I deserved this, right? But yeah. then I went to the, I went to a local drugstore and I bought my mom a coffee mug and I'd buy my stepdaddy's favorite candy and I will give it to him. What I was doing was trying to make them happy with me, trying to buy their acceptance. But it was never good enough. Yeah. The treatment my mom received from my stepfather, as well as my sister and myself and my brother Greg, just kept getting worse and worse. Until one, I, a point in time came where I quit the paper out because I felt like he, the money I was giving my mother, he was taking from me taken from her I just quit it and one particular night he, he was cleaning this 38 caliber he had a 38 caliber handgun he was cleaning it at the kitchen table and he had me sit down he asked me why I quit the paper out 
I didn't have an answer. I was shaking in my boots, so to speak. And I was looking at the ground, just so afraid. And I can hear him putting the gun back together. And I kind of look up, and I can see him putting bullets back in the chamber. And he says to me, give me one reason why I shouldn't pull the trigger. I froze in fear. I just held my breath. And the next thing I heard was click. He had pointed the gun at me and pulled the trigger. And I peed my pants instantly as I ran down those basement stairs and I hid behind the furnace because I knew back there he couldn't get to me, right? Right. And by this point, by this point in my life, he's, he's gotten to the size of around 350. So wow. he's a ra- rather large man. And yeah. I'm just a little kid. So to me, he was like a giant. So that was that was kind of the... Goodness. My life. Well, what happened after that last episode where he pulled the gun on me, mm. um, I started having all these ideas of taking my own life. And the reason being is, is this. I've tried for years now to be that big brother, to be the perfect kid, to stay out of his way, stay out of my mom's way. I'm not good enough. You know, I'm just tired of being beaten for no reason. I'm tired of them telling me to hate me. They're going to get rid of me. They're just going to throw me away. So every day I was contemplating how I can take my own life. Yeah. Uh, Mm -hmm. I watched the garbage truck come by, and he would come down our street at a a good click. I'm thinking, wow, step in front of him, I probably wouldn't feel any pain. And we lived kind of behind a real busy street. I was walking along the street, oftentimes contemplating just jumping in front of a car. Goodness. Oh. And um, so one particular day, I woke up late on a Saturday. There was nobody home. And surprisingly, the basement door was not locked. So I went upstairs looking for this gun. I decided I'm going to blow my brains out. They can clean up the mess. I, I am so done with living like this. My dad let me down. My mom has let me down. The school let me down. The church, my extended family. I've cried for help for so long, and it's like nobody cares. Why should I? Goodness. So I went looking for this gun. I couldn't find it. And as I was snooping around in their bedroom, I heard the car pull up. So with the stealth, the stealthiness of an alley cat, I kind of made sure I didn't leave any signs that I was snooping in their bedroom. I made my way back down to the basement. And that's when a light came on for me. I believe it was God saying, you need to be there for your sister and your brothers. And so those thoughts of suicide, they left. I no longer wow. contemplated. Yeah. That's incredible. I had I had a job to do, a job that my dad failed at, a job that my stepfather, although he was there physically for us, in particular his youngest, his own sons, he wasn't there. His youngest son, his two sons, acted like me, imitated me, walked like me, 
because I was in their lives. I am, you know, I spent time with them every day. Their, their father would, although we were in this new house, all the boys, we, this, the basement had a thick, uh, finished basement. There was a toilet, and all the boys' bedrooms were downstairs. There was two bedrooms for five boys. Me and Marty shared one bedroom, and then Greg, Leanne, and Andre were in the other bedroom. And when we get home from school, my mom would be at work. We would come home and grab like a cup of water, some saltine crackers, and he would always say, hit it. That meant grab crackers, some sliced cheese, and go to the basement. Mm-hmm. Once, all, once all the kids were home from school, he would lock us in the basement all night until it's time for dinner or time for our shower or our bath. But oftentimes, he would leave the house. And we had no way to escape if there was ever a fire or some other emergency. Goodness me. Wow. And this, yeah, this pattern, this is how it was. And my four younger brothers didn't know anything different. To them, this was all normal, right? Yeah. But me and my sister knew it wasn't normal. But what could we do? And, you know, we were we were going to a local church. Um, he himself didn't go. My mom usually didn't go. But we were forced to go to this church, and I, I enjoyed it because I got out of the house, me and my kid brothers. Yeah. We used to, to, to go to church on Sundays and Wednesday nights. One particular Wednesday night, the the bus that would pick us up, it was called the Joy Bus. They came to pick us up. We were in the basement locked down there, and my stepdad wasn't home. My sister wasn't home. And they were beating on the door and for probably five minutes. And then that following Sunday, one of my kid brothers... One of the youth pastors asked my kid brother, we came to get you guys. Where were you? And he told the youth pastor we were locked in the basement. We couldn't get out. So what happened next was another very sad and disappointing saga in our lives. What happened was um, instead of the pastor of this church calling the authorities to investigate what was going on, he called my stepdad the next day. They get mm. or that Monday. So we went to church on Sunday. The next day we get home from school. The pastor had this conversation with my stepdad. My stepdad loads us all up into the car, takes us over to the church, and gets into a huge physical altercation with the pastor of this church. Guess what? Hmm. Nothing happened. The Uh, cops never got involved, the social services. The church failed us once again. So, okay, so, you you know, obviously you're in this really difficult situation and getting no help and no support and going through all this trauma and this abuse, um, awful abuse, just on a daily basis. You know, it's almost like it's your... Like a routine. Um, so, how did you ultimately get free of that, and how did you then process what that did to you? Okay, 
Um, well, I think that one of the things that broke the camel's back is um, he would get drunk. My mom would get drunk. He would beat her up, and he would bring her into my bedroom. And when he would come to my room, I'm so still. I'm not even breathing. I'm pretending like I'm dead. And he would throw her in my bed, and he would say, Hey, boy, I want you to screw your mother. Obviously, Whoa. I didn't do it. I just I just t- pretended like I was dead until he would leave. And then she would wail and cry into the night, telling me, I'm going to die in your arms tonight. And she, she started telling us kids, don't be surprised if I come get you from school because we're going to leave him. I've had enough. Well, apparently she didn't have enough because uh, she stayed with him for another two years. After seventh grade, I was allowed to go to Dubuque. My mom said, pack all your clothes, you're not coming back. Once I got to Dubuque, my mom called me at my grandparents and says, we, I need you to find us an apartment. I'm bringing all the kids to Dubuque. We're leaving them. That's it. I'm done. So, in fact, I did find us an apartment. My mom did bring all the kids up with the exception of my two youngest brothers. She couldn't get, they were apparently with their father and she couldn't get away with them. So I started eighth grade and I was really struggling because not only did my mom's drinking intensify, my dad never came back into the picture. But my two youngest brothers were not with us, and that was tearing me up inside. Because I can only imagine what they were dealing with with their father. He was a sick individual. Yeah. Well, eventually, we got evicted from the apartment. We had nowhere to go. Went back to my stepdad for another... See, that was in eighth grade. The next year... You know, once we reunited, he was really nice for the first two or three days. And then he had, he, he, he instilled this idea in his two sons' minds that he's going to send all the white kids away, the white boys. He's going to get rid of us. So my little brothers, they don't know any better. They will taunt me and my two other white brothers. You're going away. You're getting thrown away. We're getting rid of you. And... Me and my brother Greg took it upon himself to say, you know what? He's not doing this to us. We decided to run away. It was in December of 1981. We walk, we thought we could walk to the view, which was like 85 miles away. We skipped out of church, and we walked approximately 20, 20 miles through fields. Now, you have to remember, I'm in ninth grade. My brother was in fifth grade. We were just so desperate, and desperate people do desperate things. Well, we decided to turn ourselves in. The state police station was right across the street, so we did that. My mom and stepdad came and got us and took us home, and but nothing changed, nothing at all. If I wasn't being attacked by my stepdad, I wasn't attacked by my mother, as well as my sister. So about a year later, my mom decided to leave them again. This time, we went to the Battle Women's Shelter. We stayed there for about two or three months. We found, we had, we obtained an apartment for the church we were going to. And I'm thinking to myself, um, we're finally free from the beast, from the monster. My mom's going to return to normal. My step, my father's going to magically appear 
and we're going to all be reunited. He's going to accept my two youngest brothers. The drinking is going to stop. We're going to be happy family. That didn't happen. What happened was the drinking and the physical abuse that I I suffered at my mom's hands was so terribly awful that there was a time where I saw my stepdad and I asked my stepdad if I can live with him. Now, you have to remember, his own sons did not live with him. All of his kids lived with my mom. But I was so afraid for my life and I was so petrified and I didn't know what to do. He laughed in my face and walked away. And that's when I made a, a, a determination I need to make a plan for my life once I'm done with school. So I joined the military, the laid into the program. It was like 363 days. Hmm. I was all set. I was going to graduate first semester of my senior year in high school. I was going to turn 18 the next day. Two weeks later, I'll be in the military in boot camp. Well, my mom decides at the last second to move back to Dubuque, Iowa, which really screwed things up for me because Iowa wouldn't accept a lot of my Illinois credits. So as it turned out, I had to go to an alternative high school. They accepted all my credits. I needed two credits to graduate. Um, we published a book about Vietnam, the Vietnam veterans of the Vietnam War. We yeah. That was sent to the White House. That was um, one of my greatest treasures working on that project. And during this time, my brothers, you know, we all made friends in the neighborhood. We, we were really poor, and, but we made the best of the situation. I would go to the YMCA and work out, try to stay away from my mom because she was seeing all these different random guys. They were getting drunk and hiding together. And at this point, my sister was away in college, so it was just, I was five boys. And whenever I was around her, she would attack physically. So hmm. now, now my dad, when we back to the abuse, my dad is now back in the picture. However, he's a helpless, hopeless, homeless alcoholic living at a rescue mission. And the only time he would come around is when he was drunk. And I refused to let him be around my kid brothers because we were raised in an environment where that's all there was. And I refused to let that cycle continue if I had anything to say about it. So as you can imagine, you know, there was a point in time in my life, James, I would dream I could fly. And I would fly to the beach to be with my father and my other family members and fly home before school every morning. That's how I longed to be with him. He was my hero. He was yeah. my everything, right? Um, so as you can imagine, seeing him in this state, I was really hurt, upset, and I had a lot of anger and resentment toward him for all the years of him not being there. I went to his sister Grace's house, who I was extremely close to, and she sat me down and she explained the reason your dad left is because your mother was having an affair with Tyrone and your father did not have the coping skills to deal with that. And she explained to me that when he was born, he had a hole in his brain that, I mean, he looks normal and he, he acted quite normal, but he didn't have all of his faculties like me and you do, per se. When he was 13, he was hit by a truck on his bicycle. He almost died. So he had some things 
against him. And she took out these yearbooks, and in these yearbooks uh, from Denver, Colorado, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Memphis, Tennessee, were actually books from different rescue missions, and they these books with pictures of my father with all these other men. He looked happy. He looked content. And mm. she proceeded to tell me the whole story about how he turned the drink in. He became homeless. He became a drifter. He would actually catch freight trains all over the Midwest. He'd, work at these, he'd live in these rescue missions, work for the day labor to get money to get drunk because he didn't know how to deal with losing his family the way he did. So that was kind of the, the, the backstory in a nutshell. But somewhere along the line during this conversation, the realization hit me that it isn't that my dad didn't love us, didn't love me. He had these demons he was trying to work through and he didn't know how to deal with life on life's terms, apparently. But it was at that time I found that ability to forgive him, to set him free. I let go of all the anger, resentment. And I saw him before I departed for the military and I gave him a hug and a kiss on the cheek and I tell him I loved him, et cetera, et cetera. So the day I go into the military, my mom cusses me out, tells me I'm just like my father, I'll never make it, and when I get kicked out of boot camp, I can't come there to live. Um, but I'm worthless, I'm scum of the earth, all these types of things. Hmm. So I go, into, I go into the military, I served a total of six years in the military. Um, in 1994, I moved back to Dubuque, Iowa, because I lost my job in Rockford, I broke up with my girlfriend, I was kind of in a transition period. That's where I met the woman who would become my wife. And we got married in September of 96. April of 97, I went to church because it was Easter, right? And I heard the same story I heard as a kid. The only difference was this time I accepted that the love that God offers. And I was able to trust in this free gift that he provides each and every one of us. I became a born-again believer, uh, Christian. And I got involved with the Christian ministry right away, um, including nursing home ministry, um, TV, radio, jail ministry, etc. Yeah. So about shy of a year after that, I found out we we're going to be parents. And I thought I had closure with my mom and my stepdad. I love my mom, right? So I guess by default, I forgave her. Well, I started having all these dreams and nightmares of what I went through as a kid. And I never really wanted to be a dad because I was so afraid of something called learned behavior. And yeah, this pattern began where not in the audible voice, but God was speaking to me through the Holy Spirit saying, I have forgiven you. Who are you not to forgive? In this case, my mother and my stepfather. And then on one particular day, I found this ability to forgive them, to set them free. Not because they asked for forgiveness, not because um, of anything like that, but because I did it for me. And when I did that, it was like a million pounds lifted off my chest. And 
power of forgiveness, isn't it? I mean, it's a very powerful thing when you're when you're finally able to forgive some, truly forgive somebody. There is a genuine weight that lifts. I I I, I had to go through the same thing with with certain people in my life, um, and I remember. I remember feeling that lift that, that there's that space in your head that, that well, that's, that's free that's, there's like oh I'm not carrying that anymore you know um, that's not that's not in my that's not in me anymore it's, it's gone and there's a there's certainly a a freedom and a lightness to that absolutely you're exactly right sir that's not to say that when I would see my stepfather at my stepbrother's house that I wouldn't get all kind of um, worked up like my adrenaline was pumping because although I forgave him I don't trust him and yeah. you know yeah. I don't want a relationship with him based on our history that doesn't mean I didn't forgive him forgiveness is not an emotion For- forgiveness is a decision you know anger and you know just using your common sense knowing this guy is no good. Don't be in a relationship with him and don't, as my kids were born and I just refused to let him be a part of their lives. And the same is true for my mother. Um, you know, even as an adult, when she'd come to the view, I would roll up the red carpet before I became a father and I would whine and dine her and just try to treat her like a queen because I love her in spite of all the stuff she did to me. But I was never good enough. And when my first son was born, he was almost, I want to say a year old before she even made an effort to come across town. Because by this time, she's living in the view to even see my son. But yet, she breaks her neck to get all the way to Seattle, Washington to see her other grandkids. It, 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 it's just a real toxic situation. Mm. So I made a, I made a choice. I refuse to let my kids be around a person that's a raging alcoholic, narcissistic. I saw how she treated my niece and nephew um, when she would babysit, when she would have a little something to drink. She would get really mean and she would hit the kids and just be downright evil. And so I guess in summary, this is my point. Yeah. I have two... I have two sons, 19 19 and 21. And guess what, James? I've broken that cycle. They don't know what it's like to be homeless. They don't know what it's like to go hungry. They don't know what it's like to be beaten for no apparent reason a couple times a week. They don't know what it's like to be locked in a basement. They don't know what that's like. So when I said before about your condition doesn't have to be your conclusion, my condition as a child could have easily transferred over to my children. You see, my mother, my father, and my stepfather all had extremely bad childhoods, but that never gave them the right to treat me and my siblings the way they did. Mm. Period doesn't give them a license. Absolutely. Absolutely, 100%. But what I did was, I, I made it, I have a template to do just the opposite of what my stepfather and mother did. 
how I interact with my children, how I discipline my children, how I every day tell them I love them, hug them, give them a peck on the cheek, and invest in myself in their lives. Let them know that I care. Not just say I care, but show them I care. By being a coach for their football team, by being an active parent in the um, Boy Scouts, and being a, a leader in the Boy Scouts, all these types of things. And to this day, James, they, my kids nickname me Dada. That's what they call me. Mm. My, my 21-year-old son, he was a junior in college, at a local university. He lives here at home, and when I see him, I go, I need a hug, Dada. Or he'll, he'll tell me he loves me. And, you know, do you know how huge that is? That's a wonderful thing, right? Yeah. It's a beautiful thing. And I want to tell people that are listening, look, maybe you've had these thoughts of suicide in your life. Maybe you have them now. I want to promise you something. You have a, a value and a significance that we can't put a, a, a price tag on it. No matter what you've been, what's been ingrained in your mind as a child, that you're worthless, you can never be anybody, you know, you have a very big role to play in this thing called life. There's a plan and a purpose for each and every one of us. And there's people in your circle of influence, either at work or your neighborhood or your family, that you can impact in a positive way. Just understand that nothing is so awful, so bad, that you have to decide to end your life. How sad that would be, how tragic. And there's people out there that would help. You know? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and of course... And of course, we haven't really mentioned this, but uh, there's uh, professional help as well. You know, therapy, counselling. You know, um, different kind, different kinds of of um, professional support that you can that you can do, that you can get, um, which can help your mental and emotional health. Um, you know, there's experts out there who, you know, qualified experts who can give you support. Um, it's so important to have those around and it's important to have community and people around you who support you as well um, yeah so I think yeah you're right it's yeah nobody should be giving up on life There's, you know everyone has value um, absolutely and I don't know the listeners out there and I've only known James for several months but um I just want to encourage you guys to get that help that you need. You know, for all the stuff I've been through, James, um, I don't know if it's considered traditional. Um, I met with the pastor, and I kind of just poured out my heart. And through the process of meeting and just working through a, this process, um, I came to the place I'm at today. And however, I am affiliated with NASCA, National Association of Adult Survivors of Child Abuse, in AASCA, and they have a Facebook page. They have a call-in show six nights a week. Some nights it's like professionals, like licensed therapists or doctors, and other nights 
people call in and share their stories. And it's just a community of other people that have been through something so traumatic. And by, you know, being there for each other, it, it does amazing things. It's like a big family. Um, yeah, so. Yeah. And like I said, go ahead, I'm sorry. No, 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 I was waiting for you. <laughs> um, life isn't easy, that's for sure. Um, but I've learned so many lessons through life. And if I, my father died in 2014. However, the last 20 years of his life, he reconciled with everybody. My mother, my sister, his two sons, and my half-brothers. In fact, he was—he rented a room from my mother for like seven years. Um, mm. And my two youngest brothers still live there, and they looked at him as a stepdad. They loved him to death. He turned his life around. He stopped drinking and made a life for himself. And, however, if I could thank him for one thing and my stepfather, it would be what it what it looks like not to be a man. You know, their example they set, the life they lived, lived um, bringing up all these kids, it, I you know, just taught me to do just the opposite. Am I a perfect father? Absolutely not. I'm not a perfect father. I still make mistakes. But I'm humble enough to own up to those mistakes and try to rectify it. And I think I encourage everyone else to try to do the same. Yeah. The thing I... The thing I try to do is just take it one day at a time. Like you hear in a lot of 12-step programs, just take it one day at a time. And in spite of, you know, like in my everyday life, forgiveness is a big thing for me. So if somebody at work says or does something that is really inappropriate or they, you know, belittle me in some kind of way, it's easy to get caught up in this web of nonsense really but I try to apply that forgiveness tool in every aspect I learn to forgive it forgive them and let it go because when we don't it's going to destroy us on the inside there might be somebody in your life that hurt you in a very very dramatic or traumatic way way back when and although that person is long gone, maybe they're dead or maybe they live on a different part of the country, and they're not thinking about you, but they're still written space in your mind because you allow that, and they have power over you. I just want to encourage you to, if like James said earlier, get that counseling you may need. Um, there's mm -hmm. a stigma. A lot of people, especially men, when they... People suggest counseling. They kind of balk at that and say, "No, you know, I don't need it." But um, you have nothing to lose and everything to gain by looking into it. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. So, just like one, this has been an amazing hour talking about this, and, and so courageous to share your story in this way. Such a powerful story, um, and it's so great you got free um, and got the forgiveness that you 
we're able to forgive. Um, yeah, that's such a powerful thing. Um, so just to, like just to close, like what would be one like really core key lesson and encouragement that you'd want to pass on to people that that maybe are struggling or trying to find freedom? Good question. <laughs> so you have to. We talked about forgiveness first, right? Forgiving yeah. others. I need. I think we need to learn to forgive ourselves as well for some of our shortcomings. Stop beating yourself up for a mistake you might have made, whether it's something you did or something you said. Learn to forgive yourself in order to grow and mature, right, as mm-hmm. a new person. But the bottom line is, as I said before, whatever condition you're facing now or you faced in the past doesn't de- doesn't define who you are, right? Yeah. It doesn't have to be your conclusion. Just because you lost your job at the factory, does that mean for the rest of your life you're going to be unemployable or you're never going to have a job again? Well, for some people, they have that thought process like my life is over, you know? Yeah. But no, your life isn't over. God closes one door to open another. We need to learn to learn from whatever we go through, you know, to help us to grow and to just advance in our lives. Yeah. Another key thing is, James, you're hitting on the counseling thing. I encourage you to, A, be willing to, like if you have a good buddy, um, if you're a man, or if you're a woman, you have a good girlfriend, that you just have opening up to about some of the stuff you're struggling with. But get it off your chest. Get it out in the open. And this individual you're talking to, obviously, is someone you trust. And that would be a good um, a good source for you. And secondly, um, if you see somebody that's struggling, I mean, maybe in your life, you have everything, everything is good in your life. Everything has been good in your life for a long time. But if you see your fellow man who's falling down, so to speak, they're going through a divorce, or maybe they lost their wife, their wife was killed in a car accident, they lost one of their children to a heroin overdose, don't you think it will behoove all of us to be there for that person? Yeah. To be that shoulder to cry on? Yeah. Even even if we can't relate to what they're going through. So many of us suffer from PTSD, but there's a lot of people who don't have that, and they can't to them, it's not relatable. They, they can't understand why you get so in such a funk. You can't work or you can't do this or you can't do that. There's triggers in your life. And if you subject yourself to the, a certain scenario, it sets you off. People don't understand that. I, I want to encourage you to try to become more educated, to learn more about depression, anxiety, PTSD. And the list goes on and on. And if you do suffer, as I said before, seek out that counseling and also seek out something that you can trust, that you can just, you know, pour out your heart. Because you're going to discover once you do that, it's going to help you become free. Yeah. And you can, and I think the absolute core of this whole thing is, is that thing you've said many times that you're beginning, you're beginning, just because something's happened to you doesn't mean it's your conclusion. You know, exactly. Yes, sir. 
Uh, and if I, in conclusion, sorry, if I could share with you where people could find find me. Yeah, I was going to ask you. Book. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. I know. I'm James. Come on, I'm a man of few words, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> um. So, if you're interested in reading more about my book, um, "When the Dust Settled" by Joe Patosi, it's on Amazon, Barnes and Noble in Zulon Press. That's X-U-L-O-N Press. Also, I'm on Instagram and Twitter, Joe Potosi, and Facebook, Joe Potosi. Um, I'm friends with James on there, in fact. So, um, I'm working on a second book. Awesome. And the second, the second book is, um, I mean, let's face it, it's a lot of work writing a book, but yeah. for me, oh, it's yeah. therapy. James, if I can real quickly say this. I forgot to mention this. Um, The reason I wrote the book, it started off as a journal. I started writing stuff down, and then I would read it out loud. And what I discovered was by writing it down on a journal and reading it out loud, typically to an individual, obviously, but whatever the case is, I found that to be healing for me. Yeah. I've said, very yeah, I've I've said many times on this show, uh, handwriting is such a is proven to be uh, very very uh, healing for emotional health, uh, mental health, and physical health as well. Writing regularly, writing regularly improves your health. It's as simple as right. that. Yeah, and telling your story is a really really therapeutic healing thing. Um, Absolutely. Uh, I know that from I experience that. as well as from theory. So, yeah. I discovered that to be very true by sharing it with others and sharing it with you and the audience today. Um, it it's hard to describe. Yeah. True. Um, but but I never get tired of talking about it because listen, the reason that journal went into a book is because I want to help people. And if that book helps one person, it served its purpose. And I can tell you, without any hesitation, it's helped me by just being transparent, having the courage. And um, I know it's helped others as well, but um, I just want to encourage you to, that's another step, to start writing stuff down. Yeah, journaling, yeah. It is is so good. James, you're so right. We can't emphasize that enough, can we? No, <laughs> I think uh, I think I mentioned it in many episodes that how important journaling is. So uh, yeah, great. Well, thank you for coming on the show, and thank you for sharing so honestly um, and so encouraging as well. Some of it at the end, you know, the the ways you found out of it and the advice you've given to other people and encouragement and solidarity as well. So um, thank you, Joe, and. Uh, yeah, go and catch up with his work and get his book for sure. So um, thanks everyone for listening and thanks Joe again. Thank you, James. I appreciate it, sir. You're absolutely welcome. Take care, everyone.